Well, hello everyone, and welcome to today's lesson. Um, once again, if I sound a little bit different, um, it's because instead of uh, standing before a uh, an audience on Sunday morning and recording this, I'm uh, actually sitting at my kitchen table uh, here Sunday evening. As many of you may know, we canceled our Sunday service uh, because of uh, the uh, coronavirus and, and just being careful and, and trying to do our part. And um, so we don't know uh, how long that's going to be, uh, but be as it may, we'll go ahead and uh, continue to uh, record the lessons and um, and post them to the uh, uh, podcast. So they should be there uh, every Monday uh, for everyone to listen to. So if you got your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, turn with me. As always, to First Peter, and today we're going to be in chapter two, verses four through ten. This is a continuation of uh, the lesson that we were in last week, uh, believers' privileges. That was part one. Uh, today we'll be looking at part two. So let's go ahead first and read this uh, just this wonderful passage of scripture. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor or the privilege is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. For those of you that have known me, you may hear me say uh, from time to time that I'm not a big fan of church signs. And the reason for that is I think we live in a culture that is moving more and more to trying to basically just compact God's Word down to a five foot by seven foot sign, but that is not how the word of God is meant to be consumed. Uh, David said, in your, I meditate in your word or I meditate in your law day and night. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed. See, the word of God is meant to be studied. The, the word of God is meant to be dug into. The, the Word of God is meant to be meditated upon. I, and there's no better example than these seven verses. These are Here are seven verses, and we've already been in here two weeks. My guess is we'll be in these seven verses probably somewhere between four and six weeks because it's just such a great treasure. It, it's, it's unending. Um, you can just keep digging and digging and digging and digging, or you can read it on a sign and move on. Um, and like I said, this this is to, our passage today is such a rich, rich portion 
of Scripture. And the reason it's so rich is it is a list of our privileges, what belongs to us, because we belong to Christ. In verse 4, Peter said this, As you come to Him, that's what initiates us into this family. That's what initiates us into this privileged group called the children of God. Now, we saw last week that our first privilege that we have is union. Read verse 5 with me again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You see, this is Peter's way of saying he's already called Jesus a living stone, and now he calls us living stones. This is just Peter's way of saying that when you come to Christ, you become like him. The very life that exists in Christ now exists in us. And as I said last week, I'm not sure there's a greater spiritual privilege than that. You see, it isn't just that we worship him. Other religions worship their own gods. And and we do worship Christ. But it isn't just that. It isn't just that we obey him or honor him, or pray to him, or bow the knee to him. We, we do all those things. But what, Christ, what sets Christianity apart is that we are united with him. His life is in us. We are eternal because he is eternal. We are accepted because he is accepted. We will live because he lives. His life is in us. What a what a great privilege. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, what a thought that is. But more than that, what a great spiritual privilege. Now today, we come to our second uh, spiritual privilege that we have in Christ, and that is access. Let's read verse 5 again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So first of all, here's Peter, and he's saying that we are this spiritual house. We're this temple. And then he kind of puts a comma in there and sort of shifts gears and says, well, not only are you the spiritual temple that God is building, but you're also the priest functioning in the Temple. Now, just a quick warning here, if I may. Don't get all called up in trying to make this fit into some logical sequence. You know, don't don't get called up here and saying, "Well, how can we be a temple, and at the same time, how can we be pre-serving in the temple?" That that's not what Peter's doing here. You know, I, I've I've spent many years teaching the different books of Paul. And Paul is so easy to follow because he is so logical. But Peter is more impetuous. That's his personality. That's that's the personality of a man that steps out of a boat to walk on water. He just kind of, whatever just kind of comes into his mind. And, and he's just different. And it's just the way he thinks. So what he's doing here is he's just using a different metaphor or a different analogy to describe another dimension or another level of our spiritual privileges. Like I said, that's just the way he thinks. So what he wants us to see is not only do we enjoy union with Jesus, but we also have the privilege of access to him. Now let me say this right here. For those of us that have been in church for a long time, or maybe we've been Christians for a long time, 
we think of this access to God, we think of it as normal. It's just what we know. It's what, you know, that we, we, we understand. We can come boldly before the throne of grace. We, we can pray. We, we just take it as normal. But let me remind you, it is not normal. Unredeemed people, the many, we are the few. We, we are the exception, not the rule. Unredeemed people, unregenerate people, people who are not born again, do not know God. And they have absolutely no access to him. Listen to Ephesians 2, 13 through 14. It was actually, this is actually describing us before we were born again, but it, it, it describes all unredeemed people. It says this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, listen to what that says. Not only when you were redeemed, not only are you far off, but between you and God is a wall. And Paul calls it the dividing wall of hostility. You see, you are in rebellion against God. You are an enemy of God. You are under the wrath of God. And there's a wall between you and him. And, and Paul calls it a wall of hostility. I mean, that, that's just crazy. I mean, think about that. So there is no access. You cannot get to God. You cannot approach him. You cannot do anything that is acceptable to him. But see, we have been born again. We have been chosen, and our privilege of access is so much more than just being brought near. It is so much more than just breaking through this wall of hostility. Peter says, you are a holy priesthood. Now, I want to explore for a moment what that means. You see, in the Old Testament, access to the temple and, and, and access to God's presence was very strictly limited. If you go back and study the, the temple in the days of Peter and in the days of Jesus, it was about a 35-acre compound. And the entire compound was considered holy. But the further you moved into it, the further you move toward the Holy of Holies, it, it, the access became more and more and more strictly limited. The outer court had these beautiful colonnades. It was refer, referred to as the court of the Gentiles. And non-Jews could walk within this outer court. They could walk within these colonnades, but they were forbidden to go any further than that. And, and these colonnades were, were beautiful. Um, but inside this 35-acre compound, it kind of in the middle of it was the temple itself. And the temple was, um, was covered or, or surrounded by these walls. And there were these gates that gave you access to the temple. And over each gate, a warning was posted. This, these warnings, uh, one of these was excavated by an archaeologist, I believe in 1840, and is currently in a, um, a museum in Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, another one was excavated uh, a little bit later and is in, is in a museum in Israel. So they've actually got these warnings that were posted over the gates of the temple in Jesus' day. This is what these warnings said. No foreigner 
may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to thank for his ensuing death. You see, as a, as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, you could stay in the outer court, but you could not enter the temple. If you were caught, you would be uh, killed. Now, as you came into the temple, only Jews could come in. And then as you first come in, there was this, there was this court called the women's court. And women could go into that court, but they could go no further. And then once you got past the women's court, you could come into a place called the court of Israel. And that is where Jewish men who were not priests, they could go into this place called the court of Israel. Once you get past the court of Israel, only priests were allowed. This is where the altar was. This is where the sacrifice uh, and the incense and things like that were offered to God. Only priests could go into this. And then, of course, you get to the Holy of Holies. And only one man could go in there, and that was the high priest. And he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. So, so what I want you to see, see the Holy, uh, the Holy of Holies, that's where God's presence was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the, the mercy seat was. That's where the glory of God dwelt. And the closer you got to that, the access was restricted more and more and more. No Gentiles, no women, no non-priests. Access was very strictly limited. So as you move progressively into the temple, there were restrictions. So under the Old Testament setup, there would have been these signs everywhere. Stop. No admittance. Stay away. You see, only the priesthood had access. Only the priesthood could get close to the presence of God. And by the way, anybody who tried to step in and perform the duties of a priest without being a true priest that you were in severe danger. In fact, let me give you a couple of examples just to show you how seriously God took this. The first example is of a man named Korah. You'll find this story in Numbers 16. Korah, this was in the days of Moses, and Moses, uh, at the at the order of God, had um, had ordained his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons as priests. Well, Korah didn't like that, and him and about 250 other men, they they came together, they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron, and this is what he said. He said, Moses, you have gone too far. Everybody in the congregation is holy, every one of them. The Lord is among them. Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Korah said, who do you think you are to just say only the priest, only Aaron and his sons could have access? We're all holy. We're, we're all in the congregation. We're, we're all, uh, the Lord is among all of us. So Moses said to Korah, okay, tomorrow morning, you and bring all the 250 men, bring your family, bring everybody and come before the Lord and I'll bring Aaron. And everybody will take your censer and you'll put fire in it. And you'll offer incense to the Lord in front of the, the temple. And we'll see what God will do. 
And then Moses said, Hereby you shall know the Lord has sent me to do these works. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. You see, Korah and those men tried to step into the office of a priest, and God killed every one of them. Another example is King Uzziah. King Uzziah, you'll find this story in Second Chronicles 26. King Uzziah was a good king, and he did a lot of really good things for a long time. But as he got older, he got very strong. The, the kingdom was at peace, and he grew proud. And, and he kept looking around, look what I had done, uh, look what I have done. And in, in chapter 26, it says this, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with eighty priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong. Then Uzziah got angry. And and when he became angry, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he had to live in a separate house. And he was excluded from coming into the temple for the rest of his life. You see, King Uzziah just thought, well, I can do what the priest can do. But God said, no, no, only ordained, consecrated priest have access anybody else step in at your own danger so you can see that god has always taken this idea of priesthood and this idea of access very uh, seriously and and trying to step into that without being ordained of god meant that bad things were going to happen to you but here we are in the new testament right i mean just think about this for a minute here we are in the new testament And Peter says, you're all a holy priesthood. If you've been born again, if you've been regenerated, if you're a child of God, you are a holy priesthood. We are separated and given admission to God. We are given access to his presence. Now listen, unlike Peter, you and I have never been involved in ancient Judaism uh, with all the sacrifices and the burning of incense and all of that. And by the way, we never will be because it doesn't um, exist anymore. We, we'll talk about that more next week. So we really don't understand as modern Christians the elements of the priesthood that have become ours. And And to be honest, we're much the poorer for that. You know, can you imagine somebody saying, we're a holy priesthood? Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know, but sounds good. Sounds wonderful. Well, see, I I want to go further than that. So I spent some time this week to study the Old Testament priesthood because I want us to, to better understand our own priesthood. Peter said at the end of our passage, so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him. Well, how can I proclaim it if I don't understand it? So I want us to understand what it means that we are a holy 
priesthood. So I went back and studied it, and in doing so, I found four characteristics of an Old Testament priest. And these four characteristics parallel the nature of our own priesthood. And my hope is that this will help us better understand this wonderful privilege that we've been given. So here are four characteristics of an Old Testament priest. Number one, they were chosen by God. Exodus 28 verse 1, this is God speaking and he said this to Moses, bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest. Aaron and his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. You see, nobody volunteered for the priesthood. There was no test. Nobody had to fill out a, a spiritual aptitude test. There was no, nobody took a vote on who was the most popular or who was the most spiritual. God just sovereignly chose Aaron and his sons. And he said, out of their lineage would come the priesthood that was chosen by God. Now listen, it is the exact same with you and I. We are chosen. We, we are the elect of God chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians 1. You see, we are priests because we're Christians. And we're Christians because we are chosen, just like Aaron and his sons. Now, we could stop right there, right? I mean, we could just stop right there and move on. But that leads us to another wonderful point. You see, Aaron and his sons were from the tribe of Levi, of course, which is one of the sons of Jacob. Now, the other people in the tribe of Levi who were not of Aaron's lineage, they were called Levites, and they were the ones who helped the priest in the temple service. So all the whole tribe, their job was to work in the, in the temple. They weren't shepherds, they weren't uh, farmers, they weren't soldiers. In fact, the other tribes would tithe to pay their salaries. That was their only job. They couldn't earn, they couldn't grow their own food, uh, they couldn't raise their own sheep. So the other tribes would, would tithe to the temple and that money or those animals or that food or whatever was used to support the Levites and the priesthood. Now, for those of us who went through the Genesis study, you'll remember something about Levi. I want to read to you the words of his father, Jacob. This was Jacob's words on his deathbed as he called in each of his sons to speak over them. Genesis 49, 5-7, this is his words about his son, Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, or my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Now, what's he talking about? Well, if you remember the story, Levi and Simeon had a, a sister named Dinah. And she was raped by the prince of this city that they had stopped at. So Simeon and Levi wanted revenge. And so they come up with a ruse and they went into this city and they convinced the men of the city to enter into a covenant with them. But in order to do that, all the men of the city had to be 
uh, circumcised. And so the men agree. So the day after they're circumcised, when, they're, when they can't fight because they're very sore, Simeon and Levi went into that city and they killed every single man. Not only did they do that, they hamstrung their oxen. Now listen, when you hamstring or hamstring someone's oxen, you're basically cutting off their ability to plow a field or earn food or make a living or feed a family, right? So here's what they did. One man raped their sister. And they wanted vengeance, but they didn't just kill that one man. They killed every man in the city, and then they hamstrung the oxen so the remaining people uh, wouldn't be able to um, cultivate their crops or feed their family. Now listen, that goes beyond vengeance. It goes into violence, and it actually goes into cruelty, which is exactly what uh, Jacob, Levi's father, uh, said. You see, Levi's own father wanted nothing to do with him. Instead of a blessing, his tribe is literally cursed by Jacob. And yet, and yet, God chose the tribe of Levi to produce the priestly line. He chose a tribe that was cursed. He chose a tribe that was violent. He chose a tribe that was known for its sinfulness. In fact, it wouldn't stretch the issue at all to say that Levi was one of the least respected tribes, and yet they are chosen by God. Hebrews 7.28 said, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. Listen, do you think there's a message there for us? Isn't God still doing the exact same thing today? Isn't God still choosing the exact same type of people? I don't know about you, but I think it's wonderful that God is still choosing the weak. God is still choosing the ones who are under a curse. God is still choosing the sinful to be priest of the living God. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-31. Paul says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. In other words, think about it. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of Him, you are chosen. Because of Him, you are priest of the living God. You see, God chose people who couldn't boast. He chose the weak, the common, the ignoble, the sinful, the cursed. Those are the types of people He chose to be His priest. He did it in the Old Testament, and He's still doing it today. And, and I'm, for one, say thank God that He is. The second characteristics of an Old Testament priest is that they were cleansed of sin. You see, before embarking on their priestly duties, there always had to be a cleansing. This is spelled out in Leviticus chapter 8. It says, And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water. And then Moses took the anointing oil, and he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, and anointed him to consecrate him. 
Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. And he killed it, and Moses took the blood, and with his finger he put it on the horns of the altar, and he purified the altar, and he poured out the blood of the base of the altar, and he consecrated it to make atonement for it. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on his head, the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then Moses took some of the oil and of the blood that was on the altar, and he sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. Now listen, I don't know about you, but that is an operation. Sin offering, burn offering, ordination, consecration, washing, But it's all saying the same thing. You can't enter the priesthood until you've been washed. You can't enter the priesthood until you've been cleansed from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. He put blood on his right ear. Why? To sanctify the ear for the hearing of the word of God. The right thumb to sanctify the hands for the work of God. And the right toe to sanctify the feet for the walk of God. Listen, that... Is, is what happened to the Old Testament priests. They had to be cleansed. What about us? Listen to 1 Corinthians six eleven. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and you read it, Paul is giving a list of these terrible sins, sins that are going to keep people out of heaven, liars and homosexuals and, and deceivers and drunkards and it just goes on and on and on. And then in verse 11 he says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Titus 3.5 says this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10, a wonderful chapter. Just as an aside, if you haven't read Hebrews 10, and just go, just go open your Bible tomorrow and just read that chapter. What a great chapter it is. Let me read part of it. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then one of the greatest statements in the Bible. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me read that again. For by a single offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, I'm still in this body of the flesh. I'm still messing up. I'm still committing sin. I'm still having to be washed. I'm still having to grow. I'm still having to be conformed. But in God's eyes, I'm perfect. In God's eyes, I'm covered by His Son. In God's eyes, I'm in union with His Son. And I am absolutely perfect. He goes on to say, And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And then the writer of Hebrews says, Where there is forgiveness of sin, or where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The third characteristics of a priest is they are clothed for service. Go back to Leviticus 8. It talks about this. And Moses put the coat on Aaron, and he tied the sash around his waist, and he clothed him with a robe, and he put the ephod on him, and he tied the band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and he set the turban on his head, and he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. In Exodus 28, it, it even goes down to his underwear. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Now you may say, well, what is the significance of all these special clothes, even this underwear? Well, in Psalms 132, we find the spiritual significance. Verse 9 says, let your priest be clothed with righteousness. Verse 16, her priest I will clothe with salvation. You see, the point is they were given special coverings, and these garments symbolize this their unique call to purity and virtue and holiness and righteousness. It identified them, identified them as a priest of God. Now listen, the same is true for you and I. The only difference is we have been clothed with the reality. Theirs was just a symbol. Theirs was just a shadow. Our garments are real. Our garments, the garments of salvation, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have the reality. 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, and who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and Redemption. You see, they their clothes were just a symbol. Their clothes were just a shadow. But we have the real thing. Number four characteristic of a priest is they were anointed for service. I won't go back and, and read Leviticus 8 again, but at least twice there it mentions that Moses poured the anointing oil on Aaron and his son. So what is what is this anointing? Well, the anointing symbolizes the Spirit of God. Luke 4.18 says this, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Acts 10.28 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Is the same not true for you and I? 1 John 2.20 says, You have been anointed by the Holy One. First John 2.27, But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. You see, we've been anointed by God. We are specially gifted with the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. His, our body is His temple. 
You see, the priest in the Old Testament could do what nobody else could do. They could go where nobody else could go. They could perform acts that nobody else could perform because they had special authority. They had a special privilege, special rights, special powers. And those same things have been granted to us in the new covenant. Let me tell you, that is who you are. You have been chosen. You have been cleansed. You have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you've been anointed for spiritual service by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You, as a believer, have direct access to the living God. What a privilege. I'll close with Hebrews uh, chapter 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Next week, as I said, we're going to be in these seven verses probably for four to six weeks. Next week, we'll come back uh, and look at part three of the believer's privileges.